Weekly World News in Review. Just had to show you my new plaid mask. Okay, because I'm in the studio by myself. I don't think we're going to affect anybody. Well, Katie's here, but we're one and the same. Welcome back, everyone, to another roundup of news stories across the planet that caught my eye. It is not an exhaustive review of every single thing that's occurred. However, most of the folks that listen to this podcast slash video cast, I don't even know what you call it when there's a video anymore. But most of the folks that listen to this are from my World Regional Geography class here in fall 2020 at Virginia Tech, home of the Fighting Hokies. However, there's lots of Virginia Tech alumni from past World Regional Geography classes that also tune into this and the wider world at large of random people that bump into this channel and say, who the hell is this crazy ass dude talking smack about the world? This is, again, not an exhaustive survey of all things, but since most of the viewership for this still small podcast uh, is in the United States, uh, all the folks who live in the United States, who have grown up in the United States, uh, do likely understand that our news cycle is all consumed with ourselves. So most Americans never hear a single thing about what's going on in the rest of the entire planet. <laughs> None more so than ever before in today's world with one Donald Trump as president and an election that is now just about 30 days away. The United States and its population simply cannot comprehend of any news except their own eminent election. So this is a little podcast to say, hey, here's some other things that are going on that uh, attracted my eye because I think they have greater repercussions than the stories themselves. Again, it's not exhaustive. <clears throat> I know that uh, there's all sorts of things to report and update about COVID or about that or politics or blah, 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 blah. I don't care about any of that stuff. Yeah, well, I do, but I'm not going to care about it for this podcast. So what I focus on is, hey, here are some things that I think you should be paying attention to because they're going to have a bigger repercussions and perhaps right soon. Uh, now, the uh, here's a smattering of headlines that I have up. This can go anywhere from, say, 30 minutes to an hour. By all means, please hit me up with questions as we go along. This is a, uh, uh, a podcast that encourages interaction. Not as much as other places that want you to tweet and like and follow and all that stuff. This is more uh, a community service for me. I just like people getting smarter about what's happening on the planet. So, yeah, did I do that right? Yeah, I'll send you the chat so you can see. Yeah, yeah, so please chat here at Twitch or on YouTube or on LinkedIn or wherever you're uh, viewing from. Hit me up with any questions as we go along, and you can feel free to bring up other news stories that I have not talked about. <clears throat> Excuse me dust in the lungs. It's not the COVID, I swear. So one of the first things that's popped into uh, uh, my field of vision this week is a story that I've actually already talked about at, oh, I am there. Okay. So I can just click. I know I hit here. Okay. That uh, a story that I have been following for a week or two now since it erupted just about two weeks ago. And it is still quite hot and getting hotter. Again, I try to uh, educate you about things that are likely to keep going, likely to have bigger impacts beyond the event itself, likely to pull in international players. And I have been following 
the Nagorno-Karabakh regional civil war slash interstate conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia ever since it did pop up again about two weeks ago. Uh, a, a small little enclave in a place that most of the world could not locate on a map if their life depended on it. Why would I be covering it and suggest it has some bigger repercussions? Well, because there are international players who are, I won't say actively fighting for either of these sides, but they are starting to intervene. And indeed, this week it has gotten worse. So now we have a situation where uh, Armenia uh, is helping out the Ar ethnic Armenians who are located in this little region called Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, for those that tuned into the podcast earlier this week, you know a lot more about this particular conflict, but I'll catch up any viewers who just tuned in today. Nagorno-Karabakh is an enclave that is technically and legally and internationally recognized as being part of Azerbaijan, a sovereign state. Armenia is a sovereign state next door. So this Nagorno-Karabakh little region is a part of Azerbaijan technically, but the people in the little region are all, almost all ethnically Armenian. They have been for decades slash hundreds of years. <laughs> Some could argue a thousand or two years. And Armenia has propped up these ethnic Armenians in this little uh, enclave into helping them fight for independence uh, and or establish authority or continue to hold authority over their little area, which they have uh, ever since the Soviet Union went away back in 1991. This little area has been disputed of who owns it. Uh, is it uh, uh, the Nagorno-Karabakh folks actually declared independence at one point from everybody, although they'd like to unify with Armenia. So that's the quick background of what's going on there. And indeed, in the last several days, uh, uh, this conflict has been on again, off again since 1994. Perhaps upwards of 30,000 people have died in the last, I don't know, 50 years fighting over this little area. Uh, and it's been largely quiet since about 1994-95. But shit hit the fan again a couple weeks ago. And while everybody in the world's been saying, hey, you guys should chill out. Everybody should relax. Um, you should, we should try to solve this diplomatically. The people on the ground have not listened and are not interested, and neither Azerbaijan, the state of Azerbaijan, or the state of Armenia has come to the negotiating table yet. Both sides have hunkered down their positions, and in the last 48 hours, I keep saying it's gotten worse because it has, because now both states, and now this is an interstate conflict almost. I kind of consider it an interstate conflict. Uh, both sides have now shelled slash bombed civilian cities, both within Nagorno-Karabakh and some surrounding countryside around it, including the town of Ganja. I had to point that out. It's actually called Ganja. I mean, I'd like to visit Ganja, but not now because it's being bombed. So this is a, a situation that is getting hotter. It's not cooling down, despite... Uh, international efforts to try to get a negotiation. And some of the kind of headlines about this that I wanted to point out are select sections of stories that I've culled out for you here on screen uh, are that uh, past skirmishes have lasted a few days back in the day, uh, but this one seems to continue to ramp up with missiles being fired again in uh, now completely civilian urban areas that have no military capacity that anybody can detect. 
the more important parts of this that are making it a bigger regional slash global issue are that who's supporting who in this fight. Uh, Turkey is the one who seems to be ticking off the most people. Turkey, as identified in this little blurb here, a NATO member, and you do need to keep this in mind, one of the main reasons I've been following this story is because I think Turkey is increasingly going to make NATO a very problematic organization to hold together in the very near future. And this particular conflict could be what gets Turkey kicked out of NATO. You heard it here first, friends. I'm always trying to allude to you, give you the insider tips about what's getting ready to happen. And this, to me, is the most important part of this story. Uh, and no offense to the Armenians and Azerbaijanis uh, who are actively dying in this fight, but from a global perspective, to me, the bigger issue is what's Turkey doing here? And is Turkey's involvement in this conflict going to put severe strains on NATO, which has nothing to do with this conflict? Okay, let me unpack that for you. For those of you that have never taken my class and have no idea what NATO is, which I doubt is any of you. <laughs> NATO is a North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It's a defensive cooperative organization founded after World War II of which uh, the United States, Canada, most of Europe, and Turkey are involved in. It's a mutual defense pact. And the basis of, uh, of NATO is its Article 5. For those of you that are currently in the class, you know all about number 5. The Article 5 of the NATO Constitution is all you need to care about. And Article 5 says, an attack on any member state of NATO will be interpreted as an attack on all member states of NATO. And therefore, if any, if Luxembourg gets attacked, the United States is coming to aid them because that's an attack on the United States. Okay, what the hell does that got to do with this little conflict in a little Armenian-controlled enclave in Azerbaijan? Just this. Turkey is ticking everybody off in the region because Turkey has been accused and and now accused by enough international players that there's likely truth to it. Now, again, I'm not there on the scene to tell you this is definitively true, but I'm a news watcher. And so when a, there, there's this thing called critical mass, and when enough different organizations or states or governments or international players start to all say, hey, this is going on, then it increases the likelihood that that indeed is going on. And what everybody is saying is going on is that Turkey an ally of Azerbaijan. Uh, Azerbaijan is a Turkic-based ethnicity. Azeris are Turkic-based people. Turkey has Turkish-based people. Uh, and they uh, their languages are related, Turkic-based languages. So there's this, and they're both uh, Islamic-following uh, uh, folks. Muslims comprise the majority of both of those states. So there's this natural affinity, and Turkey sees itself as a leader now increasingly sees itself as a leader uh, of Turkic ethnic slash, slash linguistic slash Islamic folks, uh, perhaps further afield than even Azerbaijan. Perhaps Turkey wants to extend its Turkic leadership into even Central Asia. Central Asia is another place that has a lot of Turkic-based ethnicities and languages. So Turkey is being accused of sending in basically mercenary fighters uh, into Azerbaijan to help 
put down this Armenian uprising or this civil war, whatever you want to call it now, thus exacerbating the conflict. So everyone else is saying, hey, everybody should chill out and we should figure out a diplomatic solution. And meanwhile, Turkey is sending in uh, Turkic mercenaries. There's really no better word. I keep We can call them foreign fighters if you want, but they're not from Azerbaijan. And these foreign fighters, by the way, where the hell did Turkey get a bunch of mercenaries at? Turkey had already been sending in mercenaries into the Syrian civil war, another conflict in the region that Turkey has a dog in the fight of. So Turkey wants to see the leadership of Syria overthrown, so they've been sending in fighters to help overthrow, to fight against the uh, Syrian government in a civil war that's almost over, by the way. That's a separate podcast at a separate time. Back to point. They're pulling fighters, seasoned veteran fighters from the Syrian civil war, sending them up to help smash the Armenian, uh, ethnic Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh. And everyone in the region, including Russia, including Armenia, uh, and Russia and Armenia are friends, by the way, including the United States, including France, including the United Nations, everyone's saying, hey, can you guys, Turkey, can you stop fueling this Civil war? This isn't cool at all. And Turkey's like, we don't know what you're talking about. We don't care. So again, why did I bring NATO into the fray of this? Well, because this whole area used to be under the control of Soviet Union. Uh, both Armenia and Azerbaijan and the whole Caucasus mountain regions and all of Central Asia used to be part of Soviet Union. In Russia, uh, after uh, the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, these all became independent states. Russia has largely been the big brother to all these states in terms of trying to provide stability. Some would say overreach, but also when conflicts like this have broken out, Russia has largely been seen as the power broker that goes in and says, hey, everybody should chill out. On, as a side note, to repeat myself, Russia is actually really good buddies with Armenia. They have a military relationship with Armenia. They have a military base in Armenia. Why is that important and why? Well, Armenia is mostly Christian. Not that this has anything to do with anything, but Armenia is mostly Christian. Uh, Russia sees itself as the protector of uh, Orthodox Christianity. So there's this natural cultural tie there that's turned into a social, economic, and military tie since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Armenia actually joined Russia's SCO, its little economic union, to counter the uh, European Union. So Armenia is in the orbit of Russia fairly firmly. Thus, the coming stress that NATO is going to feel. Because now if you put two and two together and why I think this is an important story. This situation is spiraling further out of control. Turkey, a NATO ally, is fueling part of this conflict. And now Russia may have to intervene on Armenia's behalf. They have not yet. And they have said they don't want to. But if Russia intervenes on Armenia's behalf because there's a Russian military base in Armenia, are you starting to see why I'm up at arms, pun intended, about this particular conflict? Because now we have a NATO member who's in this proxy fight. And if Russia gets in, intervenes in a proxy manner, now you have a NATO ally who might be going up against Russian troops on the field, and therefore, here's the big therefore, at any given point, if this gets way hotter and these parties get involved, Turkey could claim to NATO, 
that Turkish forces are being attacked by an enemy and because of NATO Article 5, all the members of NATO must come help them fight Russia. And no one, no one wants this at all, perhaps except Turkey. So that's why, and you see this on the bottom line here, experts worry Moscow could eventually decide to intervene on Armenia's behalf, a decision that would escalate the situation by pitting a U.S. NATO ally, that's Turkey, against Russia. That's why this is a freaking gigantic deal. I won't even call it a big deal yet. I actually don't think it's likely to happen. Um, I don't think that t Turkey is definitely intervening, but I, they don't want to take credit for intervening. So for them to uh, try to claim that Russia is attacking them, they would have to first admit that they're involved, which they are denying. And then there would have to be a kind of outright skirmish between Turkish troops and Russian troops. Neither of these things seems likely to me, okay? Neither seems likely. And even if those two things were to happen, the Boyer opinion is even that would not prompt NATO to get involved. The way NATO works is all NATO members actually sit around in a room. This is absolutely true. We sat in this room. We went to NATO headquarters one time on a field trip. All the NATO players sit in a room. They don't take a vote. It has to be unanimous consent, but with no voting. So all the people who represent the NATO nations literally sit in a room and talk about what's going on, and then they kind of come to a consensus of whether they consider that an attack on one of their NATO members. Uh, now, given, you know, uh, let's say if it was pre-World War II and Hitler invaded uh, Poland, a NATO member, or Hitler invaded France, a NATO member. That makes it easy. They're, that country X just invaded a NATO country. That's done. We're all going to agree to that. This is way more nuanced. And even if it gets to that point, I seriously doubt there would be consensus among NATO members to recognize this as an attack on Turkey and therefore try to work together to counter that attack. Because now you're getting into World War, World War III territory and nobody wants that over Nagorno-Karabakh. Again, no offense to my Armenian and Azeri brothers and sisters who are in this conflict, but no one's starting a World War III over this situation. What I'm trying to tell you is it's a big deal for me because I think it may be the beginning of the end of Turkey's membership in NATO. And I'm so... Uh, uh, sure of my predictive powers that if you all want, I would like to do a four-part podcast next week that picks apart all of the things Turkey is currently doing in the region and the wider world that is starting to separate it from its natural European and American allies. So every uh, Monday through Thursday, I want to do a podcast every night at, say, 8 o'clock for about a half an hour and just do one piece of what Turkey's doing and then put it all together and so that we can summarize it by Thursday. Does that sound like an idea that anybody's about? And sorry, I, I see that a bunch of, I know, I know, I can't keep up with the chats because I'm trying to, to uh, keep up with my, my own brain figuring out stuff. Uh, let me go to the chat room to see if I can catch, oh, seeing it always, yeah, I can't do it because it always wants to default when people put on a new thing, I can't see. I was trying to go up, okay. I will try to answer some questions very quickly before we even get to the other news stories. Uh, let's see. So Armenia is playing the Russia slash Crimea game. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. 
Vosek. That is an interesting way to put it, and the Soviet Union would probably agree with that assessment. It's a little bit more nuanced than that because so Great Soviet Union really didn't possess uh, Crimean Peninsula for, say, a thousand years. And, and Russia never really possessed it outright just as Russia. It kind of came into being through the political growth of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union always loved Crimean Peninsula and wanted it, but it was ethnically not mostly Russians. So the, the and I'm not defending Armenia or the ethnic Armenians in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh by any stretch of the imagination. However, this enclave has been ethnically Armenian and has been for quite some time. And again, one could trace roots back hundreds of years to this mountainous, very mountainous, uh, sparsely populated ethnic enclave that has been mostly Armenia and was part of a greater Armenian empire, say, 1,000, 2,000 years ago. So they have a slight, it's slightly different, but I like the way you think. I agree with the thought process there that they are trying to kind of grab this place back and maybe absorb it into Armenia proper. They just have a lot more historical legacy over this stretch of land than the Soviets or the Russians ever had on Crimean Peninsula. And even when the Russians uh, a few years ago finally just outright took the Crimean Peninsula, even then it was mostly not Russian people. It was ethnically not Russian people. So that's what makes it a slightly different, but I like the way you think. Uh, Cameron says, let's go to Ganja. Show me the way to Ganja. Um, uh, Rake6902 says, I think if not solved early, it would involve more countries. It actually probably, Rate, won't involve more countries. I just explained the two major power players involved here, and it's Turkey and Russia. Turkey and Russia on behalf of Azerbaijan and Armenia. There's not a whole lot of vested interest by any other world powers, although the United States is seen as the power broker still for reasons that I can't understand. Everybody's saying, well, when's the U.S. going to get involved and help solve this? <laughs> and I'm a pragmatic teacher of things. I'm a pragmatic pragmatic explainer of things, I should say, not a teacher of things. And I'm pragmatic means you're realistic and you're logical. And so the U.S. getting involved in this right now, they, the odds are zero and slightly less than zero. The United States is fully absorbed with its election cycle, and it's not doing anything anytime soon in this particular circumstance. Uh, let's see. Matt Growl says, what do you make of China threatening to invade Taiwan? That's another podcast. Uh, and that, that's going to get hot, too, based upon the same theory that s big power states in today's world are much more open to outright just taking over areas that they think are theirs. This has been a theme that's starting to, that was mostly quelled after World War II. Everyone in the world kind of accepted the rules of the game after World War II and said, no, 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 we're not going to make, uh, we're not going to say that might makes right and a powerful state can do whatever it wants. And we all respect each other's boundaries and blah, blah, blah. That seems to be fading in today's world. So that's why I think the China-Taiwan issue is very significant as well and is going to get hotter before it gets cooler and perhaps way hot, way fast, depending on what happens with china and Western relations in the coming years. I have a story for that if we ever get to the last slide I have. Okay, uh, let's see. Rake says, if Turkey's presence is confirmed, then France would come in to support Armenia. Um, 
France has been talking a big game right now, and the French leader uh, uh, Macron, President Macron, has been a very vocal uh, foreign policy dude. His whole term, France has tons of domestic issues, tons, more than the United States, but unlike the U.S. president who just, America first, I mean, he summed it up, America first, uh, the U.S. president doesn't particularly have a lot of interest in the rest of the world. Uh, the French president seems to be more active than ever on the global stage. That's a whole other story uh, in and of itself, too. And uh, uh, Macron has been out and about and on the scene for a lot of different things happening on the planet right now. So he has been one of the big uh, chargers uh, saying that, hey, Turkey is making this situation way worse and Turkey needs to chill the hell out. And he's also been making fun of Turkey for various other things that we'll talk about next week if you want to tune in for the four-part podcast on Turkey ticking off the world. <laughs> there, I just invented the title of it, too. Uh, but I do not believe that France would get militarily involved. I, I, that would be a stretch of the imagination for me, too. Not the least of which because it would be starting to step on Russia's toes. Even if it was trying to help, Russia is kind of the main power that's going to help support Armenia if it comes to that. France probably won't do a lot. Uh, Rake also says it'll later involve Pakistan, and then India will come in as an impact relations. Ah, now we're starting to stretch it. Uh, let's see. Wasn't the entire Cameron, the map god says, wasn't there entire cleansing slash genocide back in the days of the Ottoman Empire? Yes. Uh, does that have anything to do with the current struggle? Absolutely, Cameron. That is also another fantastic comment because that is at, um, I won't say the heart of it, the... Turkish genocide against Armenian peoples back during the uh, the last days of the Ottoman Empire. We're talking about World War One, 1914 up to 1918. Perhaps upwards of a million ethnic Armenians were killed by Turkish Ottoman troops. Again, I'm saying Turkish Ottoman because it was not the current state of Turkey. The current state of Turkey is what was left over from the Ottoman Empire. So the current political class of Turkey says, hey, dudes, that shit, that genocide shit happened before there was a state of Turkey. So you can't blame the state of Turkey and we shouldn't have to recognize that genocide because if we recognize that genocide, then you're going to want recompensation and money and you're going to sue us in world court. So the Turkish current Turkish government of Turkey uh, has adamantly denied the genocide and said it never, either it never happened or it wasn't our fault, and so we're not going to recognize it. There has been a, a worldwide Armenian movement to get other countries to recognize that genocide. And indeed, it's one of the reasons why Turkey does not like Armenia. So yeah, you're getting at the heart of some things. There's some other stuff. There's some other baggage happening in the background of this conflict. And that's partly one of the reasons why Turkey's making the play that it's making. And we might see that recognizing the Armenian genocide come back into play very soon on the world stage because that will be a leverage point that France and the United States and the EU may use to try to modify Turkey's behavior in some of the things that Turkey's doing that these entities do not like. Russia may end up recognizing it just to piss off Turkey. So, well, watch for that one. That issue's going to come back into play, too. Uh, let's see. Uh, Rake's got a whole bunch of comments here. I'm trying to... Yeah, I'm not sure 
Voet says, so Turkey's involved in both the most likely next wars, the one between themselves and Greece, as well as Armenia versus Azerbaijan. Yes, uh, a vote sec, that is exactly right. And there's actually other conflicts that Turkey's on the forefront of, namely over this island called Cyprus. So you can add that to your list. And Mediterranean Sea claims. So yeah, that's why we're gonna spend next week talking about how Turkey's ticking everybody off. Uh, and Rake says, please read all. I'm going to, uh, Rake, but yeah, yeah. Um, I will read them all and I will respond to you as much as I can, Rake, but you do have like 40 comments, so I'm gonna try to do as much as I can. Okay, and I will try. Uh, how do I, how do I reestablish the the chat flow over here? You're on it. That's the bottom one. Oh, okay. Yeah, Thanks so much, Rake uh, sixty nine two for all your great comments. I'm, I'm I swear I'm going to answer them all, even if it's just via text. But I did have a few more stories that I want to get to. Yeah, you can go back over here. And related to this is this is a uh, what you have on screen right now. I found I find this fascinating. It's okay. I find this fascinating that um, one of the other ways that this story is being uh, spun uh, is, and this is semi-propaganda. I, I shouldn't say uh, it's not propaganda in terms of it's fake, but you know, you do know that news sources can spin a story or concentrate on things to make a point that they want to make. That's kind of propaganda. Uh, so Turkey is likely funneling foreign fighters into the situation, but a news source can focus just on that instead of focusing on other things or say certain words to elicit a response. So this news story you see right here is from Fox News. And Fox News' take on this is death toll sores uh, in Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict. And this is a fight against jihadists, quote unquote. And I love how they quote unquote themselves because that's just a quote from the story they wrote. <laughs> So it's, you can't quote yourself. I guess you can. But the fact that they're using the word jihadist is what interests me the most and should interest you as well. And um, by that, Fox News, uh, a very conservative, uh, a quasi-religious or at least playing to religious fundamentalism and Christian uh, uh, moral sensibilities, uh, is being very specific in using that word that very few other news sources are using, except the Russian government, by the way. The Russian government has also used the word jihadist and Islamic terrorist. And why would I point this out? Why would this have anything to do with the story? Well, we're talking about the same idea that Turkey is sending um, uh, mercenaries into help fight for Islamic Muslim Azerbaijan, and so they're spinning it and saying, ah, now this is turning into a holy war. Now, again, why would Russia and Fox News of America do this? Because they're trying to build support for their side. And so by framing this, they're using hot button keywords to frame things the way they want them framed. Again, don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that Russia and Fox News is wrong. They're taking a likely correct piece of information that Turkey is sending these fighters, but they're framing them in such a way as to get your attention and to incite and to agitate you and be like, oh my God, Turkey is sponsoring terrorism and jihadism. And it's like, whoa, I'm not willing to say that. And I don't think Turkey's actually trying to do that. Uh, however, it's a good way to get people's attention and therefore get the world, the European slash Christian slash American world 
to side up with Armenia on this specific conflict that's going down. Interesting use of words. Uh, people, uh, politicians and writers and news people choose words wisely. So always be watching when you see a word that's like, wow, that's kind of strange. What would be the political gain of them using that word? The jihadist one is a big one. Uh, uh, Islamic extremism will be a big one. Uh, again, the Russian government a few days ago said that they believed that this whole region was going to be a hotbed of terrorism uh, and Islamic terrorism if uh, the Azerbaijani government uh, aided by these Turkish uh, mercenaries ends up taking over this mountainous stronghold and perhaps slaughtering a bunch of Christian Armenians. And that will definitely be making news. They will continue to start. You heard it here first. They'll con they will start calling the Armenians in this place Christian Armenians to help kind of divide up opinion and get you to side up one way or the other with them. That makes sense? Okay. The other thing about this particular news story that caught my attention is that the Azerbaijani uh, military and, again, perhaps these Turkish um, uh, mercenaries are using new types of drones, suicide drones, or loitering munitions. Listen to that. What a great word. Loitering munitions. Loitering. So loitering is when you hang out. Munitions is shit blows up. So the idea that the future, of, and this starts to play into the future of conflict in areas just like this because it's an unconventional battlefield. It's a very mountainous area, uh, narrow mountain passes, high mountain villages and towns, rebels, freedom fighters, Islamic terrorists. You, you take your pick. Anybody that wants to be off grid hides in mountains. And that's because they're very hard for conventional militaries to get to them. You can't run tanks into the mountains. You can't land helicopters in the mountains, not easily. Uh, it, it's very hard to get troops in the mountains because they all have to file through narrow mountain passes. So drone war warfare is increasing and increasing quickly, specifically in mountainous terrains and in places just like this. So loitering munitions uh, is telling you, hey, People are figuring out you can use floating bombs to much more effectively blow up stuff and people in mountainous areas that are hard to get conventional armies into. It's, it's not a feel-good story, but it's a story you're going to hear more about. And that's the kind of stuff I'm trying to point out to you. Now let's go on to some other things. Just quickly, because I know we're out of time already. I don't know, where does the time go? Uh... Another place that used to be part of Soviet Union, Kyrgyzstan. Perhaps you saw this story pop up in the last four days. Uh, a state of emergency has just come into force in the entire state of Kyrgyzstan after protests continued to fight at rallies in the capital, Bishkek. I love that capital, Bishkek. What a great name. Uh, and what happened here? Well, this is, again, a country much like Azerbaijan, you probably can't find on a map unless you're a geo-geek like some of us. This landlocked country, which borders China, part of the Soviet Union until 1991, it actually, uh, much like its other Central Asian brethren states, uh, namely Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, that's all the stands, all of those areas used to be part of Soviet Union. Kyrgyzstan has actually broken tradition since 1991 in that virtually all the other states of this region we call Central Asia 
turned immediately into something we call one-party states. And some of you might recognize this diagram from the World Regional Geography textbook, The Plaid Avengers World. You know, the Plaid Avenger. <laughs> uh, in the Plaid Avengers world, we update this map every year after doing an assessment of the political status of the governing system in each country. And for a very long period of time, in fact, even on this map, you see all of the Central Asian states, as well as Russia, as well as China, lit up in yellow, designating a one-party state. And what a one-party state means is that it, it kind of looks like a democracy. Some of them do. They, they kind of might have elections. They kind of might do things that you would recognize that, uh, that other democracies do. But they're not really democracy because it's just one political party in charge. Uh, places like China don't even have, you know, votes. So they just say, no, the Communist Party is in charge and we run everything. We, uh, you have to be part of the Communist Party to be in the government of China and we run everything. And we run the economy and we run the politics and we start do the laws and we, we fill the judges' positions. The party does everything without much thought for any other opinions in the country, okay? Uh, the Central Asian states and Russia and now even Turkey, they hold elections. Some of them do. They pretend, they have the trappings of democracy, but it is one political party that wins every single election all the time. Uh, even Russia, Russia now is, uh, it's Vladimir Putin's state. They, they should basically just say he's the new czar. He's the 21st century czar of Russia. He has no intent on ever giving up power. It doesn't matter if they even hold elections. He's not going anywhere. And the entire Duma, 99% of the Duma is, uh, and that's the equivalent of uh, their Congress, it, almost everybody's of this one political party. So they all agree uh, with all the main things that their party agrees with. And if you step out of line uh, of the party line, you're going to lose your job. So in that circumstance, it's not a democracy, even if you hold a, something that looks like an election. Now, bringing that up because Turkey recently got added to the list of one-party states. I didn't mean to keep bashing Turkey, this whole world news roundup, but Turkey just re recently got put back into the one-party state column. They were a functioning democracy for a while, but under Recep Tayyip Erdogan, there's no political opposition anymore. He got rid of it all. Uh, they shut down uh, in one-party states. They don't allow for expressing other opinions. They'll shut down news sources that the government disagrees with. They stock the parliaments and the congresses and the dumas with party people. So the, again, they're all on in the same boat. It's not a free expression of political opinion state. And that applies to all the ones in yellow right here. So what's that got to do with this? Well, because Kyrgyzstan actually had been doing slightly better in the last 10, even 15 years. They have held something closer to real elections, uh, and there has been opposition voices. So you have governments that are comprised of representatives of differing viewpoints. However, uh, this has caused a bit of turbulence in Kyrgyzstan, uh, so much so that people uh, kind of like the idea that their vote counts and that they have a voice and they can protest against uh, the current government or policies of a government of a government by voting in another political party, and they've really embraced it. And that perhaps, perhaps it's because they're a newer democracy. They're still working out the kinks of how it all works. 
But because they're such adamant supporters of democracy, it's actually semi-destabilized the place. Meaning that at least two different times, the people have overthrown the government <laughs> that was elected or disputed elections in the past when they think things aren't going appropriately. And in Kyrgyzstan, when the people don't think something's going right, they actually go out and do something about it. Not like the United States where everybody just kind of complains around the water cooler all the time, or even Great Britain. Most of the other democracies, most people just whine and complain if they don't like something. In Kyrgyzstan, they're like, nope, we're going to the streets. We don't like this. Start burning buildings down. So what you had happened a few days ago was another presidential election. And there were 12 political parties, not even two. Uh, 12 political parties, uh, and only four of the 12 got enough votes to even go on to the next round of voting. So again, it, this isn't like the United States democracy. You don't just go out and vote once every four years for something and that's that. It, it's very simple in the United States because there's only two political parties. In most multi-party democracies, which is perhaps a more true version of democracy because you have differing viewpoints, um, in multi-party democracies where you have three, four, five, twelve political parties, most of the time you have rounds of voting. So everybody goes out and votes. And then whatever two or three or four political parties get the most votes, get the most, not all, get the most, then they go on and run, have another election that's just between those four and everybody votes again for which one of those four they want to have power. Make sense so far? Well, four days ago they had one of those and eight different parties didn't get enough votes to keep going. And you might say, well, whoa, 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 that's democracy. That could have happened. Maybe those four political parties did get the majority or enough votes and the other eight parties didn't. Here's the deal, though. All four of the parties that got to keep going were all parties that supported the current president and his current political party. And now you're getting back to a one-party state situation. Uh, of all four, even though they're called different, you know, was, you know, political party A, political party B, political party C, if they all had the same platform, then did the government just stack the deck here and say, oh, no, no, we're diverse. We have got four different political parties who all agree with what we're doing. And only those four won all the votes. So I think logically uh, the people of uh, Kyrgyzstan said, this is bullshit. You should have at least cheated a little bit better and let one or two of our political parties of opposition get to go on to the next round of voting. It wasn't like they even won anything. It was just to go to the next round of voting. So that's what this is all about. And that's partly why the place had to uh, have an emergency declaration, uh, basically martial law, because now people are so incensed that the government has cheated them and that this, uh, this whole uh, voting thing was such a scam that they're burning buildings, they're occupying buildings, they occupied the White House, the equivalent of the White House, they just took it over. These are protesters. And they're doing it in different parts of the country too. They're taking over local government buildings and the local peoples in local towns are just electing people thems uh, themselves and saying, nope, we don't care about the next election. We're Whoever's most powerful here, we're putting our representatives now in charge of our little region. So basically, it's utter chaos. And uh, no one knows exactly what they're going to do. But the martial law slash emergency law that was just enacted, they're going to try to calm things down and likely try to do another vote. One would think that would be the logical course of action. Otherwise, people are just going to keep protesting. 
So I believe within a week you'll likely hear the Kurg government say, oh, okay, we'll have a redo. We'll have a redo and perhaps we won't cheat as obviously as we did last time. Or, you know what, maybe they didn't cheat. Oh, they can run the election again and if the same results occur though, it's probably gonna blow back up again. So we'll follow that story. I am interested in that story, partly because I want people to understand that while we in the West love democracy, hey, I'm an avid fan myself. I don't want other people in charge of my life or the laws that I have to follow who I completely disagree with and I have no voice in. I, I like, even I might not like politicians and I might not like who wins, but I like to have that sense that I have some sort of control or some sort of part of the government that controls the things that I get to do and see and hear and touch and the businesses I get to start in my society. That's what democracy is all about. You have a vested interest in it because you're a participant in it. And I would not like to live in a society like Russia that unless I was part of that one party, you have no say and they can do anything they want to you all the time. China's doing great. China's doing gangbusters. They're going to have the biggest economy on planet Earth and a billion Chinese people are super happy. I am not comfortable living in China because I don't like the idea that I have no say over my personal life or anything that happens and that any law at any time could be enacted against me because the government feels like it. That's not, that's not a society that I personally would enjoy living in. Again, a billion Chinese people do and that's fine. That's fine. We all have grown up, we all have different expectations and have grown up different places and, uh, and uh, expect certain things out of our leadership. It's interesting to note that, uh, I was, this is why I went off on a rant, um, that a lot of us in the West who love democracy think everybody should just be a democracy and the world would be a better place. You do have to understand that democracy is messy. And the reason I bring up the Kyrgyzstan story is this is case in point. Democracies are messy. And especially when they're brand new and people are still trying to figure out, they can be chaotic and unruly. And chaotic, unruly systems scare the hell out of most governments. And that's why, by the way, uh, I could go back here. That's why, by the way, you see so many one-party states who are actually entrenching their power in the modern world. China and Russia don't like instability. They don't, even if they had aspirations of being a democracy, they're like, ugh. Democracy can get ugly and it's messy and the transition to true democracy is chaotic. And those are all things that the Chinese government despises and actually most governments don't really want to participate in. So my point being democracy may be great from our viewpoint, but it is problematic, especially once they're getting started up. That doesn't mean we shouldn't support them because I, I totally do. I also uh, was intrigued by this story because if you start to take all the stories we've been talking about together, they have a kind of a common thread. And I'll throw in another one. Uh, earlier today, Russia put uh, the Belarusian opposition leader on its most wanted list. Uh, no one can quite figure this one out either, although it probably is because of what I'm getting ready to tell you next. So if you've seen this, Belarus had a completely fraudulent election about a month ago. The opposition uh, leader there, this lovely lady, uh, Tika, Tika Novoskaya, Tika Novoskaya um, likely won at least a percentage of the votes, uh, but the Belarusian government cheated so hard, they said, no, 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 the guy who's been in charge for 30 years, he won 90% of the vote. When you cheat badly, it becomes obvious that you cheated. So they should have at least said she got 
30% of the vote. If, if they just said she got 30% of the vote and the other dude got 60 or, or 70, there might not have been a revolution. But when you say, no, this one guy, Lukashenko, who's been a dictator for 27 years, he won all the vote because everybody loves him because Belarus is doing so well. Everybody's like, bullshit. That is obviously not true. So Belarus has been up at arms because they want to become a real democracy. And people took to the streets immediately. And this poor woman got run out of the country because the government, state government apparatus came after her and was harassing. Uh, she already, she, the only reason she even ran is because her husband was the politician who was running. And they beat the hell out of him and threw him in jail and wouldn't let him run. So she became a figurehead to run. So they have already run her and her family out of the country. And ever since, she's been meeting with other democracies trying to elicit support for her cause and to uh, talk other countries into putting sanctions on Belarus and pressuring Belarus and seizing Belarusian assets in order to pressure that dictatorship government to step down. Uh, and she has met with some success. In fact, she's in Berlin today. I think she met with Angela Merkel uh, of Germany. So that is happening. And for reasons that no one quite understands, although I think I might have an idea, Russia came out today and said, she's on our most wanted list. If she comes into Belarusian territory or Russian territory, we're going to arrest her as a criminal. And you're like, oh, oh, okay, but Russia, don't you pretend to be a democracy? <laughs> so Russia has firmly claimed its backing for Alexander Lukashenko, the dictator of Belarus. And perhaps as a... Um, novice world news assessor and a, you know, non-academic, I shouldn't perhaps use the term dictator because what, a, what proof do I have that Alexander Lukashenko is a true dictator? Well, 27 years of being in charge of a country that's not doing well and that it's increasingly obvious that a lot of people don't like you and yet you won 90% of the vote, yeah, that's why I call him a dictator. In fact, most Europeans consider Lukashenko the last dictator of Europe, although new dictators are rising to perhaps take his place in other countries. Anyway, that's what's going on. Russia firmly behind locking Belarus down and supporting the dictator in charge there to try to calm that democratic uprising. And now you see that, oh, and the other story I mentioned today, Nagorno-Karabakh, Moscow talks uh, 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 raise hope of peace. Moscow is actually hosting tomorrow. They're hosting two of the leaders from Armenia and Azerbaijan to try to settle this uh, uh, conflict. This just got announced one hour ago before I came on screen. So that's new, new. And that shows that Russia is projecting its power as a peacemaker in a former province, former territory of USSR. Belarus is a former province of USSR. Kyrgyzstan is a former province of USSR. And now you're starting to see the tie I'm making here. Russia is quite busy right now. The Russian government is super busy. All of the fringe territories that used to be states of the greater USSR are still kind of under its influence. And Moscow is taking varying tacks of how to deal with different situations. It's quite intriguing. Uh, again, it's also intriguing, and here's the tie I'm trying to make. Russia likes stability. As I suggested earlier, Russia and China really love stability. So three different conflicts, 
three different conflicts currently occurring in three different places that used to be part of great Soviet Union. Basically, in your mind's eye, just think about this as Russia's entire periphery, its fringe, is getting lit up with action because these are all places that used to be USSR and they're still having growing pains. They've only been free of the USSR since 1991. So you're looking at less than 30 years. These countries are still trying to hash out their way forward. And Moscow is, in some cases, wanting it to be peaceful. In other cases, wanting to slam the door shut on, say, any uh, democratic movement in Belarus. And they haven't even made a public statement about Kyrgyzstan yet. So this is problematic for Russia. It doesn't want instability, instability on all the fringe that surround Mother Russia in places that used to be controlled by Mother Russia during Soviet Union time. So interesting that all these things are occurring and interesting that Russia is trying to stabilize all of the, they're trying to put fires out, but they're doing it through different tactics. And the, the strange one is they think they're gonna put the fire in Belarus out by helping a dictator slam shut the doors of freedom for a bunch of people. That That seems like, you're just going to make it worse. But hey, Sergei Lavnov is the foreign minister of Russia, and he is one smart cookie. So they know their region. They know their backyard better than I do. And that's the way they think going forward it's going to help them. And I do want to end this, what I thought was going to be a half hour, turning into exactly an hour. Another news story that I think is of great consequence because it's perhaps just the beginning of this story, the very beginning of a story that's going to play out for years or decades to come, is that this week, something called the Quad met. I'm going to have to put this in the textbook. We have a new international grouping. It's called the Quad. <laughs> that just sounds cool. It sounds sports-like. The Quad, and do know this, for future understanding of planet Earth. The quad is the United States, India, Japan, and Australia. What do those four countries have in common? They're not even near each other. None of them even share a border with each other. They span half the globe, if not more. Why would those four countries get together? And Mike Pompeo, the U.S. Secretary of State, made his position on why the countries got together 100% clear. And the United States' purpose of pulling these countries together is to counter China. You heard it here first. To counter the growth and influence of China. Pompeo makes no bones about it. He says, and by the way, what were the things that these four countries have in common? Um, they're all democracies. Hey, we're back to politics and we're back to political systems again. These are the four biggest uh, full-fledged, true, full-on democracies uh, that kind of surround China. Hey, we're back to this word called periphery. I just talked about Russia's periphery. Uh, being burnt up in several different uprisings. Uh, this is the periphery of China. That is the edge, the surrounding edge. Japan, uh, uh, Australia, and India literally form an arc, a democratic arc around China. The United States, of course, is across the Pacific, but the United States is kind of the quarterback of this team. 
as supposedly uh, the biggest defender of democracy. That's getting more questionable in today's world. Sorry. Sorry to get political. Uh, But the United States, of course, has had a fist fight, trade fight, open embargo fight with China ever since the Trump administration took over four years ago. Uh, I won't even talk about the merits of that. There are some. There are also some detriments. But the United States has definitely, uh, the Trump administration picked a fight with China quite intentionally and has continued to push it quite intentionally. And they're about economics and jobs and all this other stuff. What they're using as the tactic to pull these countries together is democracy. And they're saying, hey, look, uh, China is an authoritarian state. I liken it more to a one-party state. But under Xi Jinping, who already made himself ruler for life, they are becoming more authoritarian. They're going back in time, back to the future uh, for China, is that they've always been an authoritarian state, and and they kind of loosened up a little bit and opened up to the world, but now they're getting back to being an authoritarian state under Xi Jinping, who will definitely be in power for at least 30 years. And he holds all power in the state now and wants things to run his way. At the same time that China's been rising in the last 20 years, one could push it to 30, uh, but definitely the last 20 as China has become empowered and rejoined the uh, stage of true global powers. Uh, it soon will be the biggest economy on planet Earth. Uh, its military uh, uh, defensive and offensive capabilities have grown exponential, may not be too much of an extreme term, uh, in the last 20 years. Most importantly, China has projected its power outwards greatly in the last 10 to 20 years. And China under Xi Jinping definitely wants to do that more. And by projecting power out, I'm talking about soft power, but also hard power. Soft power involves everything that's not guns. So China has been working very hard to establish trade relationships, uh, trade ties, but also uh, more deeper economic ties with all of the countries of Asia. Uh, It trades with the U.S. and the EU as well. But China has been going out of its way to build, literally build roads, railroads, seaports, to establish ties with everyone from the Koreas to uh, actually Japan and Australia and Indonesia all the way over to Pakistan. They have a huge thing called One Belt, One Road Initiative that they are branching out to pull all the economies of Asia and all the way over to Africa into China's orbit much the way the United States did for the last 50 to 100 years. So this isn't unprecedented. It's not that China's bad for doing it. It's just now seen as threatening to the future of the United States and perhaps threatening to other places around China who have been used to being quite powerful. Uh, For a very long time, the U.S. was the biggest economy in the world. Uh, uh, Japan was the second Uh, Then it was like the UK and France and Italy. It was very uh, uh, Western world focused. And today, China's going to be, if not already, the biggest economic power on planet Earth. And so that makes different countries gravitate in different ways. And the Trump administration's way to counter that is this, the Quad. So the Quad got together to talk about uh, increased uh, relationships of security Obviously, increased relations with uh, all things economic and perhaps all things military. That's why I think this is a new thing that's just now starting. Even uh, after the Trump administration departs, be it uh, in three months or four years, whoever follows the Trump administration will likely keep this going. 
And that's something I can't believe I'm saying out loud because many of the things that the Trump administration has done will be undone as soon as somebody else gets in charge. Uh, However, this one I think is here to stay. And it is quite a big deal for something that I started to tell you about that I walked away from. I said China's been expanding its soft power and hard power. Soft power is the military stuff, lending aid. I'm sorry, soft power is the economic stuff, establishing relationships uh, with trade, uh, building infrastructure, maybe even, in fact, I'm going to say this, this is definitely going to happen, maybe even starting a new monetary unit for Afro-Eurasia that's based on the yen, uh, I'm sorry, not, uh, the, the yuan, China's monetary unit instead of the dollar. That's a fight that's coming soon too. So you see that this is a big deal for China, extending its soft power influence, lending money, doing all sorts of things, uh, giving assistance, be it charitable assistance or economic assistance to lots of different countries in this part of the world uh, and beyond. Hard power is military, and, and China is definitely also expanding its hard power. It is taking over parts of the South China Sea. It is starting military bases all around its territory, but expanding outward into the South China Sea specifically which classically is not part of China, but they are extending. They have something called the One Island Belt, and I think the Second Island Belt, that they want to be able to project true military power and ownership over an area off of their coast into the Pacific and then have the capabilities to attack up to a second area, which involves most of the Pacific Ocean. Again, is this bad? Am I saying they're evil? No, this is what powerful countries do. The United States does this. But other countries will try to counter it, and that's exactly what you're seeing here with the Quad. This is the first time these groups, uh, this group has gotten together, uh, and I'll end on this. Mike Pompeo of the United States said outright, we're all getting together to counter the influence of China and to counter China militarily if it comes to that, and we're democracies and we want to push back against authoritarianism. All of the other leaders did not say that. In fact, Australia and Japan were very quick to come out and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, we didn't say that. We, we didn't say that. That other dude said that. We're, we got together to establish deeper economic ties. And yes, to perhaps promote democracy in the greater world, but we are not saying that this is against China. And why would that be, by the way? I don't know, because Japan and Australia trade a shitload with China every day. So they are not in a position to afford to piss off China so badly that they become, it becomes a frictional relationship. The USA already has a frictional relationship with China, so they can say it. But the other surrounding countries can't, and they probably won't anytime soon. However, that does not mean the quad's not going to continue to go forward. You heard it here first. This is just the first of perhaps an annual or biannual meeting that I believe is going to be established because there's been something called an axis of democracy in the Pacific Indian Oceans that I I reported about decades ago. This is an idea that has been floated before of, hey, if we want to continue to promote democracy, then we should have a League of Democratic States. Uh, And this is part of it. And with the rise of China, it's now becoming perhaps an imperative for these states to get together to help promote China, uh, help promote democracy and push back a bit against China. I won't say confront, but push back a little bit because the rise of the hard power, the true military power of China, as China expands that hard power outwards, 
it does start to brush up very quickly against U.S. allies and democratic states. South Korea will likely join this. I mean, you got to think about it. South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, even though that's questionable status, it's a democratic state. Indonesia is actually a democratic state. The Philippines is kind of a democratic state. So this is just the beginnings of this. Where it will go, I don't know, but this the quad is the core four that will definitely keep it going. Other states may join, but the quad is the hardcore four that will keep this going for sure. China, for its part, came out immediately and attacked Pompeo and said the U.S. is just trying to start a fight. And this is ridiculous, and China is just a peaceful country doing what powerful countries do. So you can argue this either way. I'm always here just to tell you about the news that interests me because it's not going away. This is something that's going to be perpetuated for the rest of the 21st century. And with that, I'll try to answer a few questions, but I have no more news stories, and I'll try to go back uh, to uh, the chat room, which has now exploded wildly because I have been <laughs> uh, remiss at keeping up with the chatting. Oh gosh, yeah, sorry. I got oh, I got way behind. <laughs> Let's see. Camera the map god. Are PMC slash mercenaries the future of warfare? Yes, I believe so. Wasn't it mostly Russian mercenaries that invaded the Crimea? Yes, it was. Uh, yes, mercenaries are the future for international conflict because the state providing the mercenaries can always ha have deniable plausibility. They can always say, we don't know who those people were. It wasn't us. We don't know. Those were just, uh, 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 it was a frat party that got out of hand and they invaded the Crimea. It wasn't us. Uh, and also drone warfare is definitely, it's already, I'd say it's the future warfare, but it's kind of already here. But you'll see it continue um, because it's so effective at, at targeting. And it can go anywhere. And it can be within a state. You're going to see drones used within states to quell local risings. That's kind of the way Azerbaijan is looking at it. They're saying, hey, look, this isn't an interstate conflict for us. This is not war. We're using drones to blow up people in our own state. And we're a sovereign state. We're allowed to do that. And that is true. That's true. Unless you kill all of one ethnic group, and then it's genocide. And you can't do that. So, yeah, it is uh, an interesting time for how global conflict is going to evolve. And it's definitely going to evolve mercenaries and what do we call it? Loitering munitions? I just I, That sounds like the greatest rock band ever. Loitering munici munitions. Somebody can take that and run with it. Just name a song after me. Uh, let's see. Someone says South Africa. Uh, oh, I say uh, Votesec says, wasn't there a ton of European mercenaries in Africa too? Oh, absolutely. Hell, there was mercenaries used by the Roman uh, Empire. There's mercenaries used... Uh, by the Egyptian pharaohs. This is not a new phenomenon. Not, there's nothing new under the sun. We just do it with much more precision and lethality in today's world. Uh, uh, vote sex says South Africa is effectively a one-party state. I might question that one. I might question I South Africa still having votes, and uh, their one party was a very, very, very popular party. So you can have a state that's a functioning democracy, but one party wins big because they're really popular. That in and of itself doesn't make it a one-party state. A one-party state is where there is no real other parties. They may exist, but they don't get any press time. They never win in any elections. Uh, a one-party state is when a government or a political party uses its power to eliminate the voice of all the other parties. 
so it's slightly different. And so I would not count South Africa as a one-party state. Uh, Cameron Map God says, I have a question about the class where you go in... Oh, what's that? I just answered that. Okay, that one's already answered. Uh, let's see. Uh, let's see. All of them versus China. What do you think of India-China relations? Uh, Alshim21 says... What's up with India-China relations? I am really trying to get to a podcast on that. I already have it semi-prepared, so maybe I'll do the China-India border fracas a uh, week after next, but I definitely want to do Turkey next week for four small podcasts to catch you up with what's going on there because it's so active. The China-India border and China-India relations is a long-term thing, so I'm in no rush to talk about that just as yet, but we will definitely get to it by the end of the semester. Let's see. What else did I miss? I think I've caught up. Let's see. Uh, Rake says, yes, recently U.S. Navy P-8-I uh, Poseidon aircraft landed in India as part of a new logistics agreement. Yes, uh, that is true, Rake. That's a good one. Landed to refuel what you're also going to see happen. Uh, that's to, to go back to this story. Thanks for bringing that up, Rake. Uh, what... I point out stories because I believe they have longer-term repercussions and repercussions beyond a single state. And in this case, Rake has very uh, appropriately pointed out that the U.S.-India relationship has really been underdeveloped forever. India and the United States are the world's strongest, most vibrant democracies. And they're big economies, too. And if the United States is serious about this, uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, he's all about getting stronger relationships with India. So a byproduct of all of this, this quad thing, and the byproduct of China rising in power is that you're probably, and I would say extremely likely, to see a whole new era of much tighter U.S.-Indian relations. And again, why would anybody do that? Well, because India feels threatened by China. They're in an active border skirmish, skirmish with China right now. And it behooves India to have a very strong nuclear-armed ally like the United States. And it behooves the United States to have stronger relations with India uh, for the very reverse reasons. It wants to limit China's growth. And by propping up and allying with a strong India... That helps achieve the U.S. goals of countering China a little bit. That's just militarily. There's also a big push economically. India has a billion people in it. A billion possible consumers for U.S. goods. The United States has 300 million consumers with a ton of money who like to spend money on stuff. And they have gotten used to spending money on material goods made in China. And so you don't have to be too smart to understand that India is just now getting into uh, the manufacturing game. Of course, it has some businesses in manufacturing, but uh, I mean, a tenth as much as China has. So as U.S.-China relationships continue to sour and we have a trade embargo or a trade fight between the U.S. and China, it behooves the United States to partner up with India so that India becomes a source of cheap manufactured goods which flow to the United States 
for uh, U.S. consumers to buy stuff cheap. It, it helps India's economy. And then it also becomes a source that the United States can export its other goods to India so they can buy them. So I wish I was a fly on the wall uh, at these meetings, but I am positive that I am uh, assessing this correctly, that the Trump administration sees a huge potential ally, a much bigger ally, uh, in India than ever in the past economically, which then turns into militarily. So that's the other thing that certainly was talked about at the Quad, in that is that, that these four big economies that happen to be democracies surrounding China should work together to supply chain each other more since it's more stable, since they're allies and they like each other and simultaneously it takes business away from China. It takes influence away from China. It takes that strategic economic reach that China now has with everyone in Asia. It starts to limit that. So this isn't a one or the other. These things are going forward in tandem. You want to economically bind these countries together so that they're trading with each other and they're benefiting from each other instead of buying all their stuff from China. China, by the way, can weather, the, weather this storm because they have a billion and a half consumers just within their country. But it does in the big picture, isolate China a little bit if they're only making stuff that's consumed internally and that these guys can get together and prop each other's economies up to make them stronger. Does that make sense? Cool? Yes? Okay. Uh, Rake also says, I think U.S.-India relations are under development because earlier U.S. was with Pakistan, but Pakistan cheated and India-Russian friendship became strong. Also correct, Rake, uh, the United States has had a long-standing relationship with Pakistan, uh, instead of India, and that relationship has soured. There's no nicer way to say that. Remember, Osama bin Laden was killed in Pakistan. Uh, and the U.S. war on terror uh, has not been popular within Pakistan, neither the people nor the government. So the relation with Pakistan was never great, and it's gotten way not great in the last decade. And so it's another natural inclination that the U.S. would partner up with India next door, a fellow democracy. Okay? <laughs> and Cameron the Map God says, I wish I was the fly on Mike Pence's head. Oh, do you? Because now you'd be all covered with hairspray and uh, <laughs> hair, hair gel for men. All right. Well, thank you all for tuning in. I'm now late for my other three jobs, but that's okay. I really appreciate all the comments we got here. I hope that you learned a thing or two if you really like uh, this world week in review and you want me to continue it on Friday afternoons, that's great. Uh, we will also be pushing out the podcast times for next week's focus on Turkey ticking off the world is the name of that podcast series. And I'm thinking that'll be about 8 p.m., 8 to 8.30 uh, every day next week with a summary that will then follow up on the Friday weekly world news and review. Is that cool with everybody? Hope you enjoyed yourself. Hope you're having a lovely fall day here in Blacksburg or wherever you are on planet Earth. It's beautiful here in Blacksburg. And enjoy your weekend, and we'll see you next week. But for now, as always, party on. I lost where you... Oh, is it off screen? I don't see where you... Oh, well, it's you.